Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to the fourth in our series called Unity to All Things, where we're exploring God's vision for his church and what that means for when we gather on a Sunday. Ephesians 1 verse 10 has been our theme for the, uh, for the series, that this is God's vision to bring unity to all things in the heavenlies and on the earthlies under Christ. This is God's big vision. And what does it mean that we gather on a Sunday to, to help this become a reality? How is God using our Sunday gatherings to bring unity to all things in the heavenlies and the earthlies under Christ? And we're doing this right now, rebooting our thinking about church gatherings, because we've been through a lot the last year or two. As we think about the pandemic and the impact of COVID-19, we're coming into our more meeting together physically period again. And, and it's important not to just repeat what we did, but to rethink in the light of what God has taught us, are we still actually gathering in such a way to enable God to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ? In what way are we helping or possibly hindering that by what we do on a Sunday when we gather? So the last few weeks we've talked about what it means to be church, the ecclesia, the gathered, the assembled. Then we talked about why Sundays, why do we meet on a Sunday, the first day of the week, the, uh, the resurrection day. And then last time we talked about the Lord's Supper, taking bread and wine, what's it for, what's it about, what's it meant to do, and a few things around that. And I hope you found those discussions enriching. Uh, thank you for the feedback you've been giving me, by the way. And this week, what I want to talk about is an ambitious topic. Um, I want to talk about how our Sunday gatherings enhance, enable, and equip us for the mission. What is it that we do on a Sunday that helps our our engagement in God's mission become effective? What is it about Sunday gatherings that we should be thinking about that will help with that? Now, this topic of the mission is huge, to some degree controversial. I have bookshelves full of books about it or connected to it. You'll have heard a, a boatload of messages about our mission. So I'm not going to attempt to do some kind of thorough biblical theological exploration of this in this short lesson. Instead, what I decided to do actually is not to fully script this, but I've written down some notes and scriptures here to think about. I've been thinking and praying about this for a long time. So I'd like to share a bit more, in a sense, what's on my heart about this, I suppose. And in this sense, it's less of a lesson, uh, more of a chat together. Uh, have a chat with Uncle Malcolm today about the mission. And maybe you want to get a cup of tea and a biscuit and settle down and let's have a chat together and let's see what we discover together and let me share a few thoughts, uh, ask a couple of questions, and then we can discuss this in our, in our local groups. So first of all, the mission. Where do we begin with the mission? We have to begin with all the big topics back in Genesis, don't we? We have to begin back in Eden. If we miss that, we miss so much. So back in Genesis chapter two, we have a wonderful vision of God having perfect harmony, communion, connection with his creation, with the animals, with the vegetation, with Adam and Eve, all are basking in the shalom of God, all is well, until sin comes into the picture. And then there's a break, and uh, there's a curse, in fact. And first to get the curse is the serpent, and then the second to get the curse is the woman in verse 16 of chapter 3, and the third to get the curse is Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. There's a curse. And that curse is in part protective, as it, it keeps them from enduring the consequences of their sin forever. But it's also very sad because it, it puts a barrier between them and God. The curse is necessary, but the curse is lamented by God. It grieves God that he and his creation are now separated on some level. And damage has been done to the relationship with God, but to creation as a whole. The animals, the ground, the land, 
everything is suffering from the curse. I remember a sermon by Al Baird, he preached a few years ago, some of us will, will know of Al Baird, uh, called Reversing the Curse. And how it, the whole sermon was about how God has always wanted to reverse this curse. And that's why he, he chose Noah, that's why he chose Abraham, that's why he chose the people of Israel to be the people that would reveal his heart to humankind and prepare the way for his own appearance in the flesh in Jesus Christ such that he could then reveal his heart and what it means to have that personal relationship with God and and how to get that and to provide it by dying on the cross and then the teaching of that going to the all the world Jerusalem Judea Samaria to the ends of the earth that's always been the, the vision and we get the um, the final picture of that vision in the book of Revelation of course and maybe we'll just go there for a moment in chapter 22 wonderful vision here get this the angel verse, verse 1 showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life tree that gives life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for what for the healing of the nations great vision in revelation of all nations all peoples all tribes all tongues coming together to worship gone together no more division healing being brought together the curse reversed and verse 3 in fact no longer will there be any curse no longer any curse no longer any separation that's the wonderful vision genesis 3 god perseveres to revelation 20 uh, 22 and this is the mission of god i would say the mission of god is to reverse the curse so what does that mean for you and i and what does it mean for our sunday gatherings we'll come to the sunday in a little bit but let's talk a bit about what that means for you and i what it might mean more than you might think as well so reversing the curse being the people of god to bring god to the knowledge of god to the world and for people to be healed in their relationship with him and in many other ways we are to be a city on a hill matthew chapter 5 uh, we are to be the salt of the earth the light of the world uh, uh to the world uh, matthew 5 we are to be the people who who praise god in uh, that wonderful passage of first peter chapter 2 verse uh, 9 and 10 you're a chosen people a royal priesthood this is who we are holy nation god's special possession not for, for our own just our own uh enjoyment as such but that you may declare preach out speak out the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light so there's a purpose to being called out of darkness into light part of it is for our, our own relationship with god but it's partly also to declare this to the world light city on a hill all that kind of thing that's what we've been given and granted and that is why we uh, uh, do our best to make disciples in matthew 28 uh, a passage we most of us i'm sure will know extremely well Matthew 28 is Jesus talking to his immediate disciples of the time, telling them what they were to do once he was gone. He tells them to go and make disciples of all nations, all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And that combined with passages like Luke chapter 19 have often been used as a way to define the mission. Making disciples baptizing them, teaching them to obey. And then Luke 19, after uh, his encounter with Zacchaeus, Jesus says, the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. And so that's why he came. That's why we are, as we are followers of him, that's what we're all about. And that is true. God, the father wants all men, all people to be saved. That's right. But perhaps it's a little too narrow. When I was a younger Christian in what was then the Central London Church of Christ in my 20s, back in the 80s, we were all very young and even someone two years older than me like Doug Arthur seemed really old to me uh, and we we had a very simple life 
Most of us were single. Most of people were actually younger than me in the church. And we just got on with this basic mission. Let's go and make disciples. Let's go and seek and save that which was lost. And let's go and teach them the Bible. That's how God, the gospel and other things like that got developed to be able to teach them how to be healed, how to get the curse reversed for them personally. And so we made disciples. We baptized them. We taught them to obey everything, and then we sent them out, or we went out with them. And some of that was in London, and then some of that was elsewhere. As we, churches, uh, congregations were planted in Birmingham or Manchester or, or Bangalore or Singapore or all these other places. I mean, very exciting. We were motivated. We were excited. We were inspired. Nothing wrong with any of that. I wouldn't want to change that back from those days. Uh, and it's appropriate at times to have a very narrow sense of what the mission is, a very clear, narrow sense. That's okay. But as time goes by, we experienced some of us perhaps more clearly than others, that this was not all that the mission was about, who we were called to be as the chosen of God, as, as God's uh, holy chosen people. And you see this in the book of Acts, don't you? It's in Acts chapter 2, it's very simple. As Peter preaches that sermon and tells everybody to get baptized, and they do, and 3,000 are added, and they have a wonderful fellowship, breaking the bread together, glad and sincere hearts, enjoying the favor of all the people. People were added to their number daily, those who were being saved. But life begins to get a bit more complicated. In chapter 3, crowds come and because of a healing that Peter does. In chapter 4 and 5, there's persecution, very severe. In chapter 6, we have the first internal problem recorded in the church between the uh, Hebraic-speaking uh, widows and the, and the uh, Greek-speaking widows. And the church has to deal with an uh, internal challenge. In chapter 7 and 8, we have the stoning of Stephen and then the scattering of everybody across all kinds of places. They hadn't expected, they knew they were supposed to go to Samaria, but they hadn't expected to be expelled to Samaria and other places. The, the conversion of the Samaritans is controversial. The apostles have to go and check it out. Chapter 10 and 11, the controversy of the baptizing of the first Gentiles, again, has to be checked out. Then we have the controversy of whether Gentile Christians should be required to obey the law. And we have the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. We have the difficulty between Paul and Barnabas, my goodness, two great leaders in the early church, disagreeing so severely they had to go different ways in their mission. I mean, this is extraordinary. How did that happen? We have the imprisoning of Peter. We have the beheading of James. We have, we have so many other, I mean, we could go on and on, right, about all this. So many difficulties. The church, uh, the, the, the church of the first century, our brothers and sisters, had to learn how to adapt as time went by. Did it ever change? Was God's will changed? What, did he still not, did he not want people to be made disciples and baptized? Of course he still did. But the way in which the church was going to function to see that happen changed. That's why we have all the letters. Think about it. How many letters are there in the New Testament on this is how you evangelize? This is how you study the Bible with people. This is how you share your faith. This is how you make sure someone's repented. This is how you make sure someone's a true disciple. This is how you baptize somebody. I actually can't think of one letter that's about that. And indeed, the word mission isn't really even there. So if this was so important, which surely it is, this mission to seek and save that which was lost, why isn't there more in the New Testament about it, especially in the letters. And what we've discovered, what we discover is reading through the epistles by Paul and Peter and others, is that the church, I would suggest, had developed an understanding of two aspects to the mission, maybe more, but at least two. Let me suggest this to you. You can disagree with me, but let me, let me know what you think. I think in a time, the church realized it had a dual mission. It had, in one sense, an internal mission, and in one sense, an external mission, an internal mission, 
and an external mission. So what do I mean by that? Let's first of all take the internal mission. We're not going to be the city on a hill, the light shining to the bright to the world, the soul to the earth. We're not going to be that unless we're growing in Christ-likeness. The Christ-likeness I had in my 20s is not adequate to what God is calling me to now. It's also not his vision. His vision is not that I stay at one level, like he talks about in Hebrews, where we don't mature. We're like babies who need milk. No, we are designed by God to grow into ever-increasing Christ-likeness, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. That's God's dream and hope for us, that we grow into all the fullness of Christ, at Colossians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 1. We grow into that fullness, but how does that happen? Well, personal, first, partly it's about our personal devotional walk with God, our own times of prayer and Bible reading and all kinds of things like that. But it's also about the community. And this is where I think it comes, comes down to our Sunday gatherings a bit more. You see, the letters are written so much. Or the letters are written about how to practice and enable one anotherisms, the one anotherisms of the New Testament, the how to be together, how to help each other, how to resolve disputes, how to truly love each other, how to forgive one another, what it means to help each other be more Christ-like. That's why we have these letters written to husbands and wives and masters and slaves and children, instructions given as to how to be like Christ in these different roles and situations in life. It's why we have the other instructions to, to various people who are causing division not to do so, or those who weren't united to get united. We, we need this sense of an internal mission, an internal mission to help each other to become as Christ-like as we possibly can as the time goes by, the time that we're given on this earth. So my question to you in this regard is this. In what way do our Sunday gatherings enable us, help us to help one another become more Christ-like. And that's more than just being told what we ought to be like. So if we're speaking, for example, whether we're in fellowship, talking to one another as friends, or whether we're listening to someone teach, it can't just be, this is the standard, here's what Jesus was like, you ought to be like that. I don't think that's the way in which Paul and others envisage the one another passages working. There's so much about helping one another. How do Sundays help each other develop and grow in Christ-likeness? That's a question I think we need to wrestle with. I'm not saying it's not happening at all at the moment, but I do believe that we need to reflect on this uh, challenge and this opportunity that when we gather that we've got some opportunities of ways to help each other grow in Christ-likeness. How can we arrange our Sunday gatherings to enable that to its maximum? So that's, I would say, our internal mission. And then there's the external mission, which is partly about helping people get right with God, but I'd say it's also partly about revealing God's heart to the world by the way that we treat not only people, but the entirety of creation, including uh, the plants and the trees and the land and the animals and, and everything else, and including those who are not part of the ecclesia, but are the poor and the oppressed, uh, the vulnerable. Because Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, and I think this is such an important passage for this idea. Uh, he talked about what he had come to do. And quoting from Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, verse 18, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, he set to set the oppressed free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you, some may say, well, that's, that's all symbolic. It's all symbolic of the fact that he's come to save people and make sure they get right with God. And I would say there's a some certain symbolic uh, element there. But it's not only about that, is it? Because what did Jesus actually do? 
he did go around healing people. As the book of Acts says, he went around doing good. I mean, I just love that phrase. So simple. He went around doing good. Doing good in the power of the Spirit, by the strength of God. But doing, I mean, that's, if we, if we go around doing good, helping the poor, helping those who are oppressed, helping those who are vulnerable, those suffering racial discrimination, those suffering economic deprivation, those, I mean, you, you name your sufferers, there are plenty out there. As we help people with that kind of, those kinds of challenges, we are in, in the spirit of Christ, with the love of Christ, we are, we are engaged in the mission. If that was part of the way Jesus lived, then it can be and should be part of the way we live. So the mission is about saving souls, but it's also about putting wrong that, putting right that which is wrong. It's about going around doing good where there is bad or evil or things that are broken, fixing things, uh, mending things, repairing things, restoring things, including the planet the best we can, the plants, the animals, the land. I mean, the, the, what's happening to the world around us is so it must grieve the heart of God. In Psalm 24, it says, the earth is his. The earth is his. Psalm 24, the earth is his and everything in it. Every creature, every mite, every every little insect, it, it all belongs to him. He loves all that he made. In Genesis 1, it says that he saw all that he had made and it was good. Good, very good. He hasn't changed his opinion. This is all still good and very good. What can we do to demonstrate? We love it and cherish it, want to care for it the best we can. No, we can't change everything. But can we make a difference? Yes, we can make a difference to one individual soul. We can make a difference to one poor, needy, vulnerable person. We can make a difference to one garden, one plant, one animal. We can make a difference and it can be part of the way we're salt and light and declare God's praises to this world. So I would say there's an internal mission and an external mission. How can we arrange our gatherings on a Sunday to enhance our ability to carry out the internal mission and the external mission. And sometimes our gatherings can go wrong, can't they? Like in Corinth, I mean, you know, I'm sure that Paul has quite a few scathing words to say to the Corinthians about the way that they're getting drunk at their services. They're disorderly uh, in so many different ways, people eating at the wrong time and the head covering issue and the tongue speaking that's out of control. And in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, uh, as we get to verse 22, he says this, Tongues then are a sign for, uh, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances of Corinth. We don't know how often they had unbelievers or inquirers come in, but it does seem that it would have been a perfectly normal thing for, for that to happen. So our services do need to be as best we can make them, uh, if you like, visitor friendly, to use, I can't think of a better phrase for now. That's wise. Should they be all about our guests who come? Maybe, maybe not. That's a discussion. But certainly there should be a way for uh, unbelievers and inquirers to feel like they can come and hear the voice of God to them. So in what way can we arrange our Sunday gatherings such that if there is an unbeliever or an inquirer, whether one of our own children or an adult who's a friend of ours who comes or even a random stranger that comes in, in what way could our services, uh, our gatherings operate in such a way that they might be able to hear the voice of God for them? 
and we wouldn't do be doing things that are unnecessarily confusing. Some things, uh, you can't get around the fact that they're, they're confusing for a, a, an inquirer or an unbeliever, but there are ways in which we can do things that at least that confusion is either minimized or creative and creates curiosity in them so they will want to learn more. Internal mission, external mission. An external mission that encompasses, encompasses the saving of souls, but also the saving of the creation, the oppressed, the vulnerable, perhaps healing is a better word for me. Saving can mean healing, not just uh, the technical removal of the burden of the guilt of sin so that someone can be in a right relationship with God. So these are some thoughts. Um, what shall I finish on? Let's finish on Colossians chapter 2. Yes, I think we'll finish there. And then I'll ask a couple of questions and we'll be done. So as you may know, I'm studying Colossians at some depth at the moment uh, for a lesson I'm going to be teaching in Estonia next month. And I am very taken by this phrase in Colossians 2 and verse uh, 6 and 7. We'll wrap up with this. So Paul's writing uh, about many things. And he says in verse 6, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing with thankfulness. Received Christ, continue, rooted, built up, strengthened, overflowing with thankfulness. Here's my, my feeling about the mission. If we're overflowing with thankfulness, the rest of the mission will take care of itself. If we're not overflowing with thankfulness, there's no point in trying to do that external mission. We're going out there just because we, we have a duty, we feel an obligation, or because someone's expecting us, or because we feel God won't be happy unless we go and share our faith or something. It's not going to last, is it? It's not going to last for us and all the people we might bring in, if we bring in anybody. And it's not going to be an edifying uh, spectacle when we all come together if we're not overflowing with thankfulness. And so part of Paul, what Paul is trying to do in the church in Colossae, amongst other parts of the, uh, his, his letters in other places, is help them to have that overflowing thankfulness. So that then, out of that, out of that joy, out of that shalom, out of that understanding and, and experience of their healing with God, and being together in that way, being the community uh, that God has always planned for us to be, being unified, truly unified uh, under Christ, that then we will be the light we will be the salt we will be those declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into wonderful light we will be the people who are on mission and people will come i mean bear in mind in the first century nothing was really private unless you were super super rich there was no such thing as privacy your house didn't have uh, uh double glazing your doors didn't fit perfectly uh what you did in your house people could hear next door and halfway down the street when you were singing they heard you sing praises to uh the messiah when you were praying they heard you they knew what was going on especially when you weren't going to the synagogue or the pagan temple that they, they knew i mean these days who knows where anybody's going whether they when they go out they're going to the shops or going to a church service or we're going to see some friends uh, uh but when everybody in your community went to the synagogue or went to the pagan temple or perhaps one or the other and you don't you stand out like a sore thumb and they know and if you're doing something and being somebody that is not attractive they're not going to question whether they should be going to the synagogue or the pagan temple or wherever but if they hear and know and see and sense from you that you and your community are overflowing with thankfulness 
then that part of your mission having been done successfully, you can go into the second part of your mission, which is to then teach them, to help them become disciples and to baptize them and teach them to obey everything, which includes to be part of a community that helps one another to overflow with thankfulness. Well, I've shared enough in this conversation for one day. I hope you find this useful. I would like to know your thoughts. Uh, what does it mean for our Sunday gatherings? To think about this. What does it mean for our times of prayer? What does it mean for our times of corporate singing? What does it mean for our, our, our teaching and learning together? What does it mean for our fellowship times? What does it mean for the way we take the Lord's Supper together? Uh, what does it mean uh, in all these areas? What would, what, how, in what way might we adjust what we do there so that uh, the mission, God's mission can be accomplished in us and through us such that there can be unity to all things in the heavenlies and the earthlies under Christ. Love to know what you think. You can drop me an email, malcolm at malcolmcox.org. And until the next time, take care and God bless. Bye.